Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Founder Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Wu. In this podcast series, I interview exceptional individuals from all over the world with the Founder Spirit, ranging from social entrepreneurs, tech founders, to philanthropists, elite athletes, and more. Together, we'll uncover not only how they manage to succeed in face of multiple challenges, but also who they are as people and their human story. Our guest today is Masha Gordon, a seasoned investor, an avid mountaineer, endurance athlete extraordinaire, and founder of Grit and Rock, a UK-based charity championing female advancement in alpinism. At the age of 42, Masha became the fastest woman to complete the Explorer's Grand Slam in just seven months and 19 days ascending to the highest peak in each continent, as well as skiing the last degree on both the North and South Pole. She also holds the Guinness World Records as the fastest woman to scale the seven summits and to complete the three poles challenge. Before getting into climbing in her mid-30s, Masha had a very successful career in finance, navigating the world's capital markets in New York and London. She started her career on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs, and was named managing director eight years later as the leading emerging markets fund manager with a portfolio of $10 billion. She then joined PIMCO, the world's largest fixed income fund manager, as the head of emerging market equity strategies. Masha was also named fund manager of the year on multiple occasions by Lipper and Morningstar and recognized by the Financial News as a top 40 under 40 in asset management and rising stars in finance. Today, Masha continues to pursue her passion in mountaineering and a career as a professional board director. She currently serves as the chairwoman of Constellation Oil Company in Brazil and as an independent board director of Capricorn Energy, a public company listed on the London Stock Exchange. She is also a trustee and head of investment committee at Girls' Day School Trust in the UK. Masha studied journalism at the Moscow State University and holds a bachelor's in political science from the University of Wisconsin, as well as a master's in law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School at the Tufts University, where she is also a member of the board of advisors. Hi, Masha. Welcome to the Founder Spirit Podcast. It's wonderful to have you with us today, and thank you for taking the time. My pleasure and my honor. Masha, you were born and raised in the former Soviet Union on the border of Georgia. Can you tell us what life was like growing up in North Ostia? Well, look, it was a very simple life, happy life, as they go in authoritarian countries. But when you're a child, you know, you have a a life where you live in a society of uh, seemingly equal people. And I remember... Growing up, my parents were engineers, and they had those circles of friends, and we would go a lot to the mountains and the almost handmade resorts where I learned to ski with the drag lift being made by my father and his friends, staying in tiny little rail wagons that were uh, repurposed as uh, refuges. So it was a very happy life because as a child, you don't comprehend political environment or the context because you're not in conflict with society. I actually grew up being a member of the Komsomol League, which now obviously, given the Wall Street career and directorships I have, uh, seems rather uh, bizarre. But I think it shows you the the journeys we have as as individuals. And for me, my, my leadership school started with the Komsomol League. 
So yeah, happy times surrounded by mountains. Apart from tracking and skiing, I wasn't doing anything particularly technical, but growing up in an enchanted place, in a retrospect, obviously, was also a place with lots of hidden issues and hidden conflicts. But that came to, I guess, to my understanding later on in life. Is it also true that you learned to shoot? Yes, yes. Good research, Jennifer. Not only did I learn to shoot, but it's bizarre, right? You're bringing it up because president of that country has brought that back during the Cold War. We grew up with the notion that the Russians didn't want the war. We were very convinced that U.S. will come and, and capture us. So there will be an advance of some big military force and we will be called to arms. Quite ironic, if not incredibly tragic, that that's back at the floor 40 years on. But I learned to shoot where taught with very rusty Kalashnikovs, no AK-47. We had to disassemble them with eyes closed. And I learned to shoot from the guy who served in my grandfather's battalion. My grandfather commanded an artillery battalion, and then one of his younger soldiers then became the uh, teacher in charge of military preparation. And growing up during puberty, so much changes that you don't question what the country falls apart in front of your eyes. And I finished school in 1991, and I um, gained acceptance to Moscow State University uh, to study journalism. For me, I suppose it was a, a way of seeing the world, understanding the world. I was very curious as a kid, and still am very curious about life. And investing, I think, is one of the ways to understand better life around you. But I arrived to Moscow on the day when the August 1991 coup happened. And it was a very symbolic that I was transitioning from being a child, a teenager in a tiny part of the world, not really being aware of political events around me, and then being thrown into Moscow that was rapidly changing, uh, still a very sort of hungry place. This was the time of great shortages. And I was exceptionally lucky. I spoke English well, because I went to a school with advanced teaching of English. We have those in USSR. And I found a job as a stringer and translator for various Western reporters, and then ultimately ended up at the Washington Post. And seeing the world through the eyes of Post reporters, and some of them are remarkable people. For example, David Ramnick is an editor of The New Yorker. These were the people I worked with, and they helped shape my understanding of what was happening in the world around me. So just so that people know, the August coup was a failed attempt by hardliners inside the Soviet Communist Party to remove Mikhail Gorbachev, who was then the Soviet president and the general secretary of the Communist Party. And this lasted, I think, three days between the 19th and the 22nd of August in 1991. So imagine how my mother would have felt, her only daughter, to Moscow. We had the Swan Lake playing on TV. Swan Lake is when We've had various either dead leaders in the communist times or the coups when there was uncertainty and they didn't know what to say on TV. They would put Swan Lake, very trusted authority on, on calming population. Basically, my mother was sending me into Moscow into the unknown, but that was obviously happily changed in three days and the Russia went on to become a different country. That's right, because the USSR broke up at the end of December 1991, so just a few months after the August coup. You mentioned the years following the coup as formative. In what way was it formative for you? It's understanding complexity of the world. Look, I was studying in the journalism school, and this was a school that was meant reporters and journalists, i.e. albeit Soviet style. So we had 
plenty of professors who were, one could say, teaching political science and social science. And they're literally watching the adults not being able to understand the world around them and explain, and then seeking that explanation elsewhere. To give you an example, in 93, uh, President Yeltsin had a standoff with Democratic elected parliament, and he resolved that standoff by bringing tanks that started doing the mortar shelling of the parliament building. Imagine being a kid, I was at that time 18, and watching this thinking like, what is happening? We are building a democratic country, but hey, what is this guy doing here? And, and he's the guy who did, one could say the right thing and challenged Soviet authority and became the first president of Russia, a shallow democratically elected parliament. And I remember spending the night at the office of the Washington Post, which was directly across the, the parliament and watching in awe the, and horror the military action in front of my eyes. So I think in terms of why it was formative, it was formative because you had to understand that the world is so multidimensional and complex. And I felt actually very hungry for having that knowledge to be able to analyze and come to terms with that. It was also very formative because Russia at the time had no limits. And that's to your maybe founder spirit. One of the key things is to understand there, there are no limits to your knowledge, understanding what you can do. And again, I was lucky, but maybe also not just lucky. I was seeking out opportunities to go and study abroad, not because I wanted to flee Russia, but because I wanted to understand more about the world. And I received a Muskie Fellowship, which was designed by U.S. government. The U.S. government was very generous in that time, sending lots and lots of young Russians to the United States with a very good purpose of helping people equip themselves with the knowledge of how to build a better country. So that kind of set me off to U.S. and study political science and understand, again, complexity of the world and become, in a way, maybe a, a global citizen. It's a horrible word, but when I think now where I'm from, I'm obviously of Russian origin, but I'm certainly not defined by that. And it's that being a global person and seeing the world as interconnected rather than parochial is, is what has been very, very formative for me. And it must have been such a big culture shock for you to move from Moscow to the Midwest. Do you recall how you felt in the first few months in Wisconsin? Sure. So look, I was sent to actually a tiny college town, Eau Claire, and I was coming from a place that was large and Moscow at the time was very excited in the early 90s. You have top reporters and top business people and the global stage, and then you get plunged in a, in a small town America. But what I think came with that was an extraordinary appreciation of quality of people, of spirit. It was a town with not so many social issues on the surface. And you've got a sense of, I think, to the context of what vision of America we grew up with, which was the homeless people on the streets and junkies, understanding what an average, average American with a mortgage is like. They're nice people on average. They are curious about the world, though probably terribly naive in that time in, in small towns. And I've been taught by amazing people, American political history by a former Vietnam veteran, a brilliant guy that was, I guess, a surplus of fantastically educated people who were coming to very small colleges and teaching great courses. So I learned a ton and I benefited hugely from actually having that very gentle introduction to America. Clearly, I had no idea who Green Bay Packers were or anything of that sort. And I don't think I had an average college experience that was maybe more of a bookworm. That was my kind of cultural journey. 
You also did a master's degree in law and diplomacy after that. Why did you decide to go into finance? Great question. You know what? If you were to tell me when I was 19 or 20 that I would be interested in something as menial as discounted free cash flow, I would totally snub you because I would think, gosh, it's so parochial and so much with a view to enrich yourself. And <laughs> that to be a journey of curiosity. At Fletcher, I took, which is a brilliant school, a out of interest, a class on corporate finance and fell in love with the logic of investing, with the logic of thinking about how companies evolve, and I found beauty in, in numbers. I was very numerical, as maybe a Soviet kid would be, <laughs> as we were all prepared to build rockets. So I felt that there were many parallels to actually being a journalist, because you look for stories, and you want to be on the story first, except that clearly you need to quantify the story. You want to have your own sources, sources that no one else has. When you think about the innings of, of investing, you have your tenants, as to what makes a good investment, makes a good story. And then you need to know how to ask questions to get answers. Good investors know how to think it out of the box and get to the truth of the story. And so I spent a summer between my first and second year in Brazil working for a mini Goldman Sachs in Sao Paulo. And I loved it. I loved looking at companies and being in another emerging market because you saw so many parallels to the world. I grew up in Russia, though it's the climate is different, issues are the same. And I felt it was a great journey of curiosity and an interesting application. And I was uh, very lucky to be recruiting that in 1997. I had 15 offers, but offers from, you would be smiling when I'll be telling you who, who I got the offers from. Enron, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and you know, luckily there was Goldman Sachs and Capital Group. And so I t tossed and turned and uh, Chairs at the end to join Goldman in New York. I joined Goldman on the day of Russian devaluation in 1998. And I was joining as a Russia analyst in the investment group. And day one, I concluded that my career was over. But as you know, in investing, any crisis brings an opportunity. So I actually was very lucky to end up where I did at the time I did, because emerging markets were deeply out of vogue. And I was given responsibility of managing portfolio very early on, because frankly, my boss was a brilliant woman, but she was so tired of the ups and downs of OVM that she shifted into global equities. And I got this poison chalice of managing the portfolio, but you know, it was in 2003, just before the breaks took off. And it was a brilliant opportunity. And I want to mention your first year when you joined in summer 98, that was when Russia defaulted on its sovereign debt, but it's also a year before Goldman went public. So what was your first year like between the Russian financial crisis and Goldman's IPO? Look, Goldman was still a quite a small place. We knew all the partners and all the partners were very involved in uh, building people culture. I think Goldman was worried at that time as an institution of making sure that it doesn't lose that culture of close touch of moral authority that partners carried. So I had a brilliant time having exposure to very senior people that were those IPO partners. Now there are very few left in the institution. And the firm had its 10 commandments, the commandment number one, a business rule number one, client comes first. And there was, this is, was a creed. And I think that that would save that institution through many cycles because that notion that these are the principles that keep us awake at night and keep us engaged in business. I'm sure certain members of the firm at times deviated from that. 
those members were cast out at the end of the day. So I had a great upbringing. I was a part of investment management division, which was new in a retrospect. When I think about it, would I have been better served joining an institution like Capital Group with very strong investment culture, perhaps? So for me, maybe a journey in investing was more of a trial and error on my own part, trying to understand what works, what doesn't, rather than working with very strong investment professionals that grew up in one culture. For example, when I came to PIMCO, the difference was striking because there everyone was hired by Bill Gross 40 some years ago, and the firm had this very strong, very, very specific culture that led to exceptional results that were quite uniform across the board. Goldman was a collection of boutiques. And I have to count blessings for being in a place for 12 years that made me a professional. And those qualities are invaluable when you step out of this storied institutions because you can take that franchise of being a professional and turn it into your personal brand. And that helps you ultimately in other undertakings you make. According to Google, it takes an associate average 12 to 13 years to become a managing director at Goldman, but you made it in eight. So what is your secret, Masha? I've been thrown in the zone of insecurity. It was in 2003. My father was just diagnosed with cancer. I remember getting a call from my boss on the slope. I took a brief ski holiday with my family. And it felt like a poison chalice because it was the bottom of emerging market. At that time, everyone wanted to be in VC or in private equity, certainly not in emerging markets. And when you're in an institution where bonuses drive part of the self-worth and net worth of people, I guess the secret was having right mentors. I remember this amazing moment when the guy who ran asset management globally was based in London, a gentleman called David Blood, who later went on to set up Generation Asset Management. He understood that I was petrified because I was uh, young. I was 29 years old. And I probably felt that being, being given a fund of less than $100 million in an institution that values assets under management, i.e. this is not very much. He said, you know what, I'm going to help you. I'm going to come to every meeting that you have, and I will make sure that people understand how important this is for me. And in the meantime, clearly he could, you know, observe how I performed. He was a really, really lovely guy and, and remained a mentor. And he could give me points on how to be assertive. And that was well before the era of, uh, sponsorship, mentorship, allyship, or whatever the trendy words are now in trying to bring diversity and inclusion into organizations. He was doing it in 2003, and that, i.e. 20 years ago. And that was extraordinary help. And I think it gave me that confidence and feeling I can do it. And I uh, was working with brilliant people that enabled me. So I had a fantastic team. And one of the very young people who came to join me, a fresh college graduate, from Notre Dame called Catherine Koch, or Katie Koch, who now is the president of TCW. She came in and she was 23 years old and said, I can go to every private wealth office in Goldman Sachs and tell the story of emerging markets and BRICS and how exciting it is and how great your team is. And she did it. And she helped us raise the assets on the management from $100 billion to the $8 billion with market appreciation. It will uh, end up being $10 billion. So it's having this trust in people around you and when you're thrown an opportunity, embracing it, though it may be really, really scary, because at the end of the day, you can do it. You have a toolbox in being a professional, and it's all about just breathing deeply 
and having allies. So having a team, you can never do stuff like that on your own. So I cherish those times. And obviously I cherish friendships that those times brought from that very formative experience. I think having the right mentor and having a very supportive team is really, really important all throughout your career, especially when you're just starting out. As you mentioned, you end up managing a massive portfolio of $10 billion. I also understand in 2006, I think, it was the IPO roadshow of Rosneft, which is the largest state-owned oil company in Russia. You openly asked a question to the CFO. I would say a burning question that nobody dared to ask related to its acquisition of assets from another former oil company. Can you tell us what that question was and the story behind it? Yeah, so this was a banker from Morgan Stanley, Peter O'Brien, who then went on to serve at various boards. And he was selling the assets of UCAS, which was a company that we owned in the portfolio previously that was uh, clearly robbed of us in a hold up state action against a former oligarch, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who then became obviously co-celebre and was in prison for 10 years and now is a vocal opponent of the current president of Russia. And my question to him was, how can you come here with a straight face, being clearly a Western person, having grown up with the principles that we all share, and the former MD of Morgan Stanley, how could you be selling this to me because these are stolen assets? And no one likes confrontation. I've had a number of those confrontations in the years to come. And it's interesting because they are followed at times by periods of exceptional performance. And clearly, Rosneft was bailed out of its, I would say, reputational doldrums initially by the merger of the Russian division with BP. But then at the end of the day, that lack of spine comes to haunt us. The bad guys turn out to be the bad guys. And when you were managing those $10 billion portfolio, what were your daily habits? In retrospect, they were probably very healthy habits because at that point I have not had that passion that now consumes a big part of my life which is climbing, mountaineering. I was a young mother. My daily habits would be waking up at six in the morning and checking nervously what happened in Asian markets at the time, calculating in my mind, I knew my portfolio by heart and I could tell what my performance will be that day against the market. Reading a lot of news and taking Brazilian meetings. I think if I were doing it now, and I, I would be a lot more economical with my time and would have many more filters, and I would go away and spend a lot of time away from the world to think and not be influenced. We're humans, right? And we get deeply influenced by information, by data, by behavior of other individuals that confirm our biases and make us feel comfortable and ultimately skew the decisions and make them less rational. So I think I would change my daily habits hugely. But with that, I had a an amazing life in terms of feeding that curiosity and having access to amazing deal makers and thought leaders and corporate executives and, you know, forming again, a, a very beautiful tapestry of what was happening in the world. It made me also, as a result, a person that can converse about cheap wars in Taiwan and U.S. or why Kui Chao Mutai is an amazing enterprise and a, and a great drink and the chosen drink of the, of the Chinese elite. That time at Goldman's and, and PIMCO gave me an incredible gift of traveling to many, many, many countries and learning about the world. And that's such a gift of lifetime that I only hope my kids could have because it gives you the sense how extraordinary big the world is and how to live fully. So having had that hindsight of your 
12-year career at Goldman as an investor, what do you think are the critical skills that one needs to be a successful investor today? I think you need to be able to focus on the secular, i.e. focus on big trends, because there is so much noise that various issues bring that clearly influence the price movement in the near term, but ultimately doesn't shift the needle. You need to be very numerical because I lived through many bubbles in my investment career. For example, Tinkoff, Credit Services, TCS, once one of the most successful fintechs in Europe. And I remember sitting in the boardroom and debating with the executives as to why what are the perils of crypto and why we shouldn't be investing a huge amount of capital in the crypto exchange or going down the road because I understood the innings of the bubbles. Clearly, you can make money short term, but then long term, it could blow up your franchise. So I think that in investing, being able to be slightly removed from the world. Now, I have seen this displayed in human qualities that could say that you are slightly on the on the neural spectrum that you really deeply don't care. You're built the way that you can shield yourself from the desire to be liked or heard. And that helps because you are then, as a machine, you could be a, a perfect engine of that price discovery. But it's difficult. We're humans. And that's why maybe machines at some point will be better at optimizing the information flow, optimizing for judgment and crowding of the market and may come up with better portfolios. Just think of Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett, they sit in the middle of nowhere, they see very few people, yet they have their tenants. And those tenants, i.e. why they invest, what type of companies they invest, how long they stay, what would prompt them to change their mind is what makes them successful long term. Very difficult thing to do. And if you look at performance record of managers in human hearts, 80% of managers underperform benchmark over short and, and long term periods. So it's a tough game. I would agree with that. At one point in my life, I traded FX, looking for the macro trends and being able to distinguish from the noise is very important. Having also gone through quite a few of market cycles, when my intern, she started buying Bitcoin, this is 2017, I knew that there was a crash coming. <laughs> so absolutely. But I think if you haven't lived through those investment cycles, you don't really recognize them. In China, the investment cycle has been a 30-year cycle, you could say, or 40-year trajectory going up. And I remember when I lived in China and I was ex trying to explain to a local person that why banks fail, and she didn't understand this concept of, but banks don't fail and the economy always goes up because that was part of their experience. So it was interesting. In 2010, you left Goldman to join PIMCO. What prompted you to leave the golden cage? I was approached. I was on maternity leave uh, with my second child. I came actually to Chamonix. That's where my love affair with the mountains started. And I got a call from a friend who was a headhunter uh, saying that Pimco has looked at many managers over the past year, failed to find one. Would I consider speaking to them? And it was another call I got on the ski slope. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, why not? And I went out to California and met Mohamed el and Bill Gross and really enjoyed that sense of very strong culture. Mohamed is a brilliant man. Bill obviously doesn't need any introduction. 
And I felt that I would grow. I grew up in one investment culture. I had to find my investment culture. And I wanted to belong to an institution that had that very much at its core. And I was able to assemble my own team. So it felt like an opportunity to build a smaller, nimbler team, but in a place that had strong investment culture, had its own macro ideas, and was a very good experience. It lasted for years, but I enjoyed it tremendously. So during the four years when you were at PIMCO, there were some quite public drama unfolding between its founder, Bill Gross, as you mentioned, and its CEO, Mohammed El Aryan. Can you tell us what you saw was happening from the inside of the company? Sure. The, look, the public drama really just unfolded in 2014. In the first three years, these were great years of great performance of the investment franchise, uniform performance. It was, again, a very strong culture. And a small organization, the firm managed to $2 trillion, and the investment professionals totaled no more than 150. So tiny organization with the culture being that all great ideas get pitched to the whole organization. And it was done in um, cyclical and secular forms four times a year. You would produce this book of top three ideas. And everyone from an analyst, Dan Iverson, who now runs the firm, would produce their top three ideas and you would have to quantify it. It was very stringent, no, no more than one page long for all three. And they will be bound into a book and everyone will have that investment ideas book. I remember one of my first impressions around Pinko is like you would walk in an elevator and people instead of saying, ah, how is the weather today? They would ask, what are your top three ideas? <laughs> you would think like, are you mad? Because at Goldman, this would never be a conversation, right? It was not a culture, not that people didn't have their three best ideas. So it was super driven on, on performance and on pitching ideas to the big portfolio, total return fund or to the investment committee. And investment committee was brutal with its dissection of ideas. And I think that that's where actually the success lies. Uh, Goldman's culture was the culture of uh, collaboration and no direct confrontation. In, if you take that in investment division, you could be actually penalized in your 360-degree reviews for busking the direct questions. Whereas at PIMCO, that would be the contrary. Incidentally, at those years, firm didn't do any performance reviews whatsoever. Your performance was <laughs> zero review. So again, diametrically opposed cultures. So in 2010 to 13, the firm I had fantastic years. Everyone was a hero. And in 14, or maybe at the tail end of 14, Bill got one of his calls wrong, and his portfolio was not performing for a quarter. Yet, obviously, the firm had this daily perch at CNBC never paid. He was public, though his portfolio consisted of lots of little bets, not one of his huge bets, but clearly something didn't work that quarter. And as a result, at the age of 70, having been the best fixed income manager of 40 years, not just a decade, 40 years, right, Morningstar, he started looking for the reasons why that was the case. And he turned onto his investment committee and onto Mohammed was the CEO at the time. And he identified that the reason why we were not performing was that people were too nice to each other. And Mohammed was a, this amazing CEO. You know, he would return your email within 10 minutes after you send it with thoughtful comments. This is, by the way, the best way of engender loyalty because you communicate how important a person two floors below you is. But Bill decided to extinguish Mohammed because he was the evil. And I remember that horrendous secular forum in March 
where Mohammed was relegated to the broom cupboard in one of the buildings. He was still there for, for the clients to explain why he was graceful of retiring. All these people were incredibly wealthy because the firm was so profitable, so large. But he wasn't allowed to come to the forum. And we were all sitting in this fairly small hall. And Bill came out and gave this speech where he said that the worst decision of his career was rehiring Mohammed back from Harvard University, where he ran an endowment, having been prior to that at PIMCO. Sort of, he was so ungraceful at bashing and identifying this culture. And then he said that he's going to have a witch hunt and root out all the Mohammedists in the, in the audience. And the scary thing was, it was like a picture from 1930s Germany. After he finished this ranting speech, which was completely inappropriate, and probably now would, uh, if you were in a public company, this would be a firing, a firing offense. Someone stood up and started clapping. And then you looked around the room and everyone stood up and was clapping. It was very difficult not to stand up and, and clap because he was defending the culture. And you kind of felt like, gosh, this is horrible. And that slowly unfolded. And I left the firm in July of that year. And I think Bill was ousted that fall. But for me, I think one of the reasons I decided to move forward, I had a difficult performance year in 14. If you recall, the President Putin invaded Crimea. I had a, a few Russian stocks. By the way, the worst decisions I've ever made in my life were with regards to Russian companies because you think that they could never be so dumb to do this. And surely enough, that's, this is the emotional thing. They do the dumb thing, just like with a horrible war that, that is um, happening today. But I looked at, at him and I thought, gosh, if he at the age of 70 cannot handle this performance pressure, is it worth it? What chance do I stand? I mean, he's clearly much more experienced and arguably much more talented than I am. And I started thinking practically, what can I do with my life? I just turned 40 and I felt I couldn't handle that because I didn't sleep for two or three months. And you feel also terrible about yourself. Your, your sense of self-worth is so tied to that daily performance that we shouldn't. You should look at a long-term record. So I made a clean break and went to do fellowship in my grad school and taught a, a class on practitioners' perspectives on investment and actively searched for the next thing. I looked at the impact investing, understood that I probably wouldn't want to be a principal, maybe a steward in the board role. I was approached by former competitors in the industry to take a board seat in a largest partial state-owned company in Russia called Alrosa, the diamond miner. Though so returning back to Russia after 20 some years was not necessarily the first point port of call, I took the challenge and had very, very interesting seven years that followed. You know, I think being approached by a former competitor um, to serve on the board of one of their companies speaks actually volumes about you. This episode is brought to you by Neons Deeper Than Beauty. Neons is a science-based Swiss luxury skincare and nutritional supplement brand focused on activating the body's natural ability to rejuvenate and regenerate for a more vital, useful, and energetic appearance. Powered by groundbreaking furnace biotechnology, its award-winning formulas with the exclusive Swiss Glacier Complex combine over 100 powerful natural active ingredients with leading clinical research. One of my favorite products from Neons 
is the Collagen Hyaluron Beauty Booster, which is a nutritional supplement that I've been taking for the last three years. As its name suggests, it contains high concentrations of marine collagen and hyaluronic acid, as well as multiple essential vitamins and minerals. It comes in a powdery mix and I drink a sachet of it every morning with water. And for me, this is the super easy beauty ritual that helps to boost not only my skin and hair, but also my bones, nails, and joints. It's 100% made in Switzerland, free from gluten, lactose, and sugar. So I hope you'll give it a try. You can find Neons online at neons.com. That is N-I-A-N-C-E.com. As listeners of my podcast, you can benefit from 15% discount by using the promo code thefounderspirit15 on neons.com. Again, that is N-I-A-N-C-E.com. But moving on, but you also left PIMCO to pursue one of your passions, which is mountaineering, or maybe it's the passion. So can you tell us for someone who failed PE at age 11, and how did you get into climbing? So it was that the blessing of free time. It's very important. I think oh, everyone should take sabbatical and, and think, gosh, what can I do? What should I do? And then try something new. So I ended up coming with my kids to the Alps, to Chamonix, and I was a casual recreational skier, but I had a, a lovely guide, an older man who was very, how to say, not economical with compliments. I think very important, the encouragement early on. And he took me on um, some of the um, easy climbs around, and I love that sense of adventure. I remember going to a first overnight climb when you go and you spend a night in the refuge, you sleep in a room. After sleeping four seasons <laughs> in your professional life, you sleep in a room with 20 strangers that snore, that have smelly socks, and oh, you wake up at two in the morning, you eat some dry bread, it's all points of discomfort, you walk out and it's a beautiful starry night and you're on a glacier and you put on your headlamp and your crampons and you go in silence towards uh, a ridge. And you watch with an awe, like a child, you watch this uh, sunrise, which obviously in the Alps on good weather day are, are extraordinary. And I felt so alive and so revitalized by that sense of adventure and being a child again. It's all these things that I, I didn't do being a child, maybe. I enjoyed how it made me feel. And then obviously, if you're encouraged and if you are serious and you put whatever, 10,000 hours, which I did in subsequent 10 plus years, you become better, although you, <laughs> you don't become a natural athlete as one would be, like maybe my son might be in a few years as he started young. You watch this progression from 0 0.0 to 5 out of 10, and it feels amazing. And it feeds then your passion even more. Uh, so I started spending most of my weekends in, in the Alps. And then when I ended up with this endowment of free time, I went on the first expedition and I absolutely loved it and very low self-esteem in terms of physical abilities. And I was on the expedition talking Kagwa, not a very difficult peak whatsoever, but it's a 7,000 meter peak. And I was surrounded by lovely people, but they all had some triathletic background. I didn't. And I was the only one who summited for various reasons. And mountains are very uncomfortable places. Maybe this was childhood and the journey. I could deal with that discomfort and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that feeling over overcoming that do point in you that tells you you can't do it and then you can do it. And that's incredible sense of, of standing on the summit, sense of accomplishment. So yeah, so that's how it all started. And one thing led to another. I found myself with this great idea of 
of potentially climbing Everest. And that came about in a very strange way. I think at the time at PIMCO, I was invited to a cocktail party and someone introduced me to a former colleague. I didn't know him, but he was a partner at Goldman's and he was a super tall guy. He was a rugby champion. The guy asked me, towering over me, oh, would you climb? And I gave him Matterhorn and Mont Blanc and he, he had some other amazing accomplishments within Alps. And then he said, well, what's your next thing? And I didn't know what to say. And I blurted out, well, I'd like to climb Everest one day. Very unoriginal. But the guy said, well, you better start soon. And I was thinking, gosh, this is what a reflection of me being a woman. Do I look that bad? <laughs> that unsporty. And that night, I remember actually going home. And it sounds all ridiculous. But watching YouTube videos of what does it take to climb Everest and what are the physical dangers. And I looked at the death record and it was, I think, 1.9%. And I thought, okay, well, that's sort of manageable. Although a friend of mine later on asked me, would you ever undergo an elective medical procedure if the death rate was so high? And clearly, the answer would be no. But, you know, it's not about elective medical procedures. So I started training. So Aconcagua was one and then the other. And then as I was going into this whole Everest route, I um, understood with giddy joy that if I redid the two mountains I've already climbed, I had a, a way of hitting potentially a female Guinness record. And it was so giddy and amazing. And I said, well, why not? Scary, but... So I ended up announcing it and, and going for it. And these were, I think, some of the most remarkable seven months of my life because of the places I've been to and hardship and ups and downs and highs and lows. But it was a beautiful time, very formative time as well. This is the perfect segue, actually, to talk about the Explorers Grand Slam an endurance challenge that you started in October 2015 and then finished seven months, 19 days later. Can you give us a sense of what it entails? So it entails climbing high speed on every continent and um, skiing to two poles. It also entails being squeezed in a very narrow window of seasons because every mountain has a season, maybe not Kilimanjaro, but stuff like North Pole has... 30 days when the Barneo station is open on ice and you can fly and, and ski. Antarctica has a season from late November to, let's say, early February. Everest certainly has a season with maybe only three or four summits days in May. And so squeezing all of it and solving for that, particularly if you start retroactively. Again, I decided to go for it when I was in Antarctica in December, but I already climbed Kilimanjaro, so it started back. It's challenging. But I had the time. And having means, because it entails also uh, being able to fund. I didn't need to fundraise, though I was uh, sponsored at the end and ultimately placed that, that money into the foundation. And then it entails having a very patient family and very good support at home. And um, my kids, their dad and our nanny, who was a very strong supporter of the record, were there and enthusiastic endorses of my crazy pursuit. So I'm incredibly grateful for their understanding that oh, this was something important for me. Yes, absolutely. It requires constant traveling. If you think about what happened after Antarctica, I came home and I great wisdom of going ice climbing in between going to reclimb Aconcagua and then heading on to in a busy chain of events of going to Indonesian Papua and Elbrus and then to Barneo, Long Airbnb and Norway, et cetera, et cetera. In the infinite wisdom in December, I went ice climbing and I ended up with a broken wrist. And that was like 25 days before 
anticipated summit of Aconcagua. And I was clearly broken. I was sitting in the gurney. I was tallied out of the mountainside in Italy into some regional hospital, surrounded by women in black who were there for their own ailments. And I was sitting in the gurney crying my, my eyes out, and they thought that I was in pain. I was full of shame. I've just announced that I was going for this record, and three days later, I broke my, my arm. And then I thought, gosh, I've already climbed a Concagua in the past. What did it entail? So visual pictures really help, visualization. And I remember American veterans, people who had lost limbs in the warfare, doing it for their own personal journeys and to inspire others. And I thought, well, if they can do it, it's not that bad. It's much harder for them. Still, when I arrived to Aconcagua, three weeks later, when the base camp doctor said that, oh, gosh, no, you cannot go with a cast up, he cut my cast. And I was crying my eyes out like a crocodile. But I was with a great friend. Why are you crying? That mountain requires walking, not, not climbing with your hands. It's a tracking peak, but very high altitude tracking peak. I said, well, I'm afraid that on the scree on the way down, I will fall because it's totally feasible and you fall on the scree. It's not mortal, but I will re-break my arm and then I can't go for Everest. So I had this schedule where I needed my arm very much so. And he said, well, don't worry, I'll short rope you. And all of a sudden that was solved. So it's keeping that visualizing what it'll be like, finding kind people to surround yourself with <laughs> was, the, was the answer. To that problem. I had a lot of luck of climbing with beautiful people. My last climb was the climb of one of the wildest ridges on Denali. I climbed Denali prior to that, a normal route. So I knew that that entails just dragging your sled many times over a very heavy sled. If you're climbing the ridge, it's different. You have to climb and in a very committed route. It takes 3000 meter pace. And once you climb the first day, you cannot go down. And you probably cannot be saved because typically get in, in trouble because of bad weather and in bad weather, they cannot fly out. So the park rangers typically tell you by the time you call for help, consider yourself dead. And it's a very stark way. <laughs> it's like, you're there, make sure you don't donate your, your capability. I did it with two great friends, very, very strong Ecuadorian climbers and made in the hindsight a mistake of wanting to climb Alpine style i.e. not fixing ropes, not having sure, carrying everything yourself, not using the Jumar like you do in Everest, not having oxygen, obviously. You have to go very light because you're trying to take away all the weight to climb light and fast. And you try to economize, right? Just enough clothes on yourself. Uh, you go with the lightest sleeping bag and also you try to economize on food. So we thought we could do the route in two days and we did it in four because we were the first team in two years to do the route. And uh, there was horrible sugary snow and our progress was slow because of conditions and mountains conditions determine so much and i remember being so hungry we all were very hungry we were sharing one cliff bar that we had last day amongst three of us and i'm internally indebted to the friendship of these people because we were a true team one was not feeling great and was almost delirious whether it was me was it Josh, the others would come and give a big hug and uh, shake it up and take the turn to, to lead the route. That's such a beautiful lesson. And I remember for me, the end of this, of this journey and this record was seeing the yellow pea stains on the close to Denali summit, where the normal route converges with Cassin and realizing that and this will happen. I was crying because I understood that we will make it to the summit. I've been there. It's where the normal route converges and also that there will be food because you come down to camps and people are usually very happy to give you food because they bring 
for the times of famine. So that was my record. And it's a beautiful time, very formative. And the beginning of a different alpine journey. So that lime alpine style outside of uh, commercial expeditions was um, something that reignited a, a passion. And I now practice climbing in that style. So besides that tough physical challenge at Denali, what was the toughest mental challenge that you had encountered in this adventure? There were a couple. First of all, we had a difficulty of the journey because the ice station on Barnia was not fixed because of actual geopolitical issue. The Barnia station was run by the Russians. This year, actually, they were not allowed to run the station, but it's the only way to get on ice. And uh, President Putin at that time, this was in 2016, decided that he would like to do the military exercises over the Arctic and Svalbard, where this place is, is a demilitarized zone governed by its own Versailles Treaty. And so the Norwegian government wasn't allowing the planes to fly to Barnia. And when we arrived to Barnia, when this was actually allowed, this was on the 12th of April. And by that time, the Everest season was way underway. It was really, really surreal experience. We touched ice and we got out and I saw a flag with a Twitter handle of the president of Chechnya. <laughs> it was so out of the world. It was, turns out that Putin brought Chechen fighters to do this Arctic exercise, watching these warriors. And I am from there. I was born in the Caucasus, dressed in this Arctic paramilitary gear, white, but still paramilitary. I mean, it was ridiculous. The portrait of Kadyrov father and Kadyrov son on the tent, on ice, with the Kalashnikov outside, as if it was a memorial to unknown soldier. It was super, super surreal. And then asking in the canteen, the guy said, oh gosh, it must have been really hard for you to prepare this runway. The word hard doesn't exist in Chechen language. <laughs> Walking away and thinking how small the world is. You get to the North Pole and you, you're still sort of dealing with issues from your childhood. But anyway, we flew to the ice, did the last degree, which is a, a very interesting thing. Unlike the South Pole, where you are on the continent, you're skiing on ice that constantly moves. And when you sleep, the tent potentially moves in the wrong direction. So it's called polar treadmill. So you have to be with very experienced people that know how to move and where to move, not to be uh, thrown back. It was a, an interesting journey. And I was with one of the best polar explorers, Eric Larson, who uh, said that the Arctic is there to kill you. And it's a place where nothing dries because you are constantly over the water. You're cold. Unlike the Antarctica, there is no UV lights and there are polar bears. So you have to make the encirclement around your camp at night with the wires so that the bear trips. I don't know what you would do, but obviously the guide has a gun, but you should never ever use it. So it was, a, again, a surreal experience and you could fall in the water, which is what happened to Eric. And the lesson learned, which I have now, is if you hold water and you're in a snowy environment, you just need to get out, roll in the, in the snow and continue walking because that's the only way to uh, prevent hypothermia. So I learned a lot of life <laughs> lessons. On the emotional side, I was doing part of the Explorers Grand Slam with a partner who was a triathlete. Now he's a famous explorer and he wasn't very supportive because I suppose I was different. We started this friendship and then it, we were tied together in the same Everest team. And being doubted and being told I cannot do something by a partner is, is a difficult one. And at the end, I had to separate myself off that and figure out how I'm going to do it on my own. So that's tough. That's tough when you are in a, in a pursuit and you know, the other person out of insecurity puts you down, even though you may have all your accomplishments being managed and directed, managed X, Y, and Z. This situation will arise and they arise in boardrooms and they arise in professional life when 
another person is there to destroy your confidence because of his own insecurity, not because he doesn't like you, but because own internal fears. It was, again, a valuable lesson of how to be able to shut it out, how to regain comfort. And actually, I found that an avarice, one of the best ways was through expressing empathy for the others. That makes you, you know, feel, feel better, feel good. Again, another very valuable leadership lesson when you're sitting in an organization that is going through a, a rocky times, showing empathy to your people and uniting that empathy is one of the ways of actually getting through what is probably a pretty unpleasant experience. I understand you were also stuck on a tiny ice bridge in Everest for four hours. Can you share with us that experience? It was a startup thing that unraveled my climbing partnership. We arrived to Everest Base Camp very late because of the Arctic. And we arrived, I think, on the 29th, and I summited on the 19th of May. So you have literally no time to acclimatize. Though both of us have climbed various 7,000-meter peaks before, so we were re-acclimatized. We are coming from the sea level. So you have this pressure of having to do things in a much, much more compressed time scale. So we've done one rotation, and in Everest, the way you climb the mountain is basically have to break yourself down, right? You go up and down, up and down, forcing your body to adapt to the environment with less oxygen or a minuscule amount of oxygen at the end relative to the sea level. You sleep in a camp, and high camp, and then you come down, you rest, you eat. Very important to rest and eat, recover, and then go up, and then you feel better. And your body, in the meantime, grows lots and lots of red blood cells. Bodies are amazing in their ability to help us cope. So we've done this super long rotation in Camp 2, which typically people don't do. I was sat there, I think, something like five or six days, came down, clearly broken, as it should be, not because we were broken, uncapable. Then there is always in base camps this paranoia that you're going to miss a good weather window, and then you're going to miss something else, just like in investing. Fear of missing out, that drives bad decision-making. So we, I think, rested like 36 hours, and my partner said, oh, gosh, I, I want to go. Are you up for that? Are you strong enough? And I wasn't strong enough to tell him no. Again, very important mountains where so much is at stake and death is no joke. It happens around you. I should have said no. And you want to go, you go. And I said stupidly, yes. And we went out and this ice bridge was in Kumbo Icefall, this horrendous feature. I think it's seven, 800 meter high, but it's obviously a very large area, right? So it takes you five or six hours to transit and in good times. We go through ice ladders and ice bridges, but you travel at night because during the day, you, you know, Everest is a place of contrast. It's very, very cold at night and very, very hot, like a skillet hot during the day because you have all the reflection from ice, UV lights that fry you. So we obviously left at midnight and we go to the place where the ladders have collapsed. And when they collapse, the only people who can fix it, again, it's a protocol, ice doctors. So we had ever-sized doctors who arrived four hours later. So we were stuck in this tiny bridge in the middle of the night, super cold, dancing. We had this little disco party because you have to keep literally standing at two square meters amongst the crevasses. Letters were fixed, but we got up on the top during the day. By that point, basically, I was clearly still acclimatizing and I was tired and very exhausted, right, through this extraordinary heat. And it took us a very long time to get to Camp 2, at which point my partner said, well, you should go down and you should do that. And I told him, I know what I will do. <laughs> you, you will go and you will climb on your own now and I will rest. And I ate and drank and slept and ate and drank and slept. And three days later, I was better. And I remember 
walking out to the story of empathy, that's the way to, to continue climbing Everest. I went for a walk and I watched this very big American guy coming down, totally, totally broken. And I said, oh, what, what happened? Did you summit? Because there were summits that day. And he said, no, I failed. And he went on and was weeping. And I gave him a hug and, and I said, well, no, you didn't fail. You were good. And <laughs> you sort of, and at that point I felt like, okay, I'm probably okay if I can comfort the, another human being, given that I've just been told myself I'm a piece of something, not capable of stuff. And uh, I ended up summiting four or five days later on my own terms at my own speed, faster actually than my climbing partner. I guess the story was to... Um, not to allow the others to shake your confidence and to take time. And I learned super valuable lesson for mountains, never to be on anyone else's schedule, because that could have all ended really badly. And you have to be honest with yourself. So that honesty, very difficult one when you are pushed and you have this great ambition that drives you, drives all the mountaineers to go and you're there to summit, but uh, the stakes in the game are high. And what was the experience like reaching the top of Everest? Because it is your dream, at least what you told someone a few years ago. Sure. It was a very long day. And just like in Denali, I understood that I'm going to summit. For me, the summit moment was probably an hour before the summit. So we were sitting in the South Pole. South Pole is the camp four before you, you get up. In the South Pole, we got the... Um, news that the weather was mixed and that probably winds would be too high to summit. And you're there. You cannot stay in South Pole because it's 8,000 meters and you're going to consume all the oxygen you have. If you go down, you lose probably three, four, five, six days and you may never get the summit window. So this is kind of it. And remember, I was alone by that time. I had Sherpa, but I didn't have anyone. But I was a part of an expedition where logistics was provided by adventure consultants, the same people in the Everest movie from many years back. And I met a beautiful woman who became a lifelong friend, Lydia Brady. She was a guide whose client decided not to climb. So she was climbing Everest for the fourth time. She was the first woman to climb Everest without oxygen many years back in 1988. Just a beautiful human being. And she told me, look, I'm climbing. We can pair up. I remember the, the Everest movie. I said, one thing I can promise you, if you tell me to turn, I will turn. <laughs> because obviously, the, another adventure consultant guy died because his client really, really wanted it. And so that whole night, as we were climbing, and we were overtaking people because in Everest, initially, you can overtake by unclipping from the fixed rope and going around. She was obviously trying to make up time not to hit that bad weather in the afternoon. I thought that we will have to turn. And I remember at some point you get stuck. There is Hillary step, and there is also Tenzin step. Unfortunately, Everest attracts people who probably have never climbed. So there was a roadblock and people not being able to bypass. And we're standing there and she was looking at our Sherpas and they didn't have clothes as good as ours. And she was worried about them and getting cold. And I was thinking, gosh, she was, she's going to tell now we're going to turn around. And I was paranoid. And you kind of feel like this is it. No record. You understand the, the reasons and you more than anything value the promise. And then the line moved and we moved and you walk and then it's uh, sunrise and you see this beautiful pyramid because Everest casts its shadow and it looks like Egyptian pyramid down in the valley. You are then overtaken by the ore. And then I saw another big rocky outcrop and I turned to her and said, is it Hillary Step? And she said, yes. And I started weeping again because I understood that we're very close to the summit and we're going to make it. And I was overjoyed. So to be honest, the summit for me was Hillary Step. Then you get on the summit and the only thing you want to do is turn around as soon as you can because you see this line that you need to overtake 
And you know that 80% of accidents happen on the way down. So you keep going and keep going. And there you go. And then it was done. Masha, thank you so much for sharing your inner journey with us. I think the inner journey sometimes is more important than the outer journey. But on the outer journey, you did run up to the peak of Kilimanjaro in 24 hours. You spent over four months sleeping in a tent and three weeks on skis and being exposed to minus 40 degrees Celsius at the pole. But in the end, you managed to beat the former women's world record that was held by Vanessa O'Brien by three months. And incidentally, Vanessa was also a former banker in London. So do you think this was a pure coincidence? Or if not, what skills did you think you brought with you from your years in finance? Look, I, I brought clearly ability to be organized, to plan. It requires stacking the seasons and getting your logistics up to the T. Ability to show up on time and wake up and be disciplined and drive yourself because the professional life forces you to show up on time whether you want it or not. And it's the same relentless being able to hold that long-term goal in front of you when actually you're puking or you have other discomforts or you are stuck with someone who is not very nice to you because you could be stuck on a deal team with someone who is absolutely dreadful, but you have to persevere. So it's great. That grit was honed for sure by 16 years of working in some of the most performance-driven institutions you can find. And it's ultimately that performance drive gets, gets rewarded endurance challenges that I undertook. And perhaps some of that grit came from your mother, being raised by a very strong woman. Yes, yeah, no, that could be the case. Absolutely. My mother is the person I'm scared of the most. It's hard to imagine that you're scared of anything or anyone, really, given what you have accomplished. Moving on to present day, you have been a professional board member since you left PIMCO, as you had mentioned, in early 2022. So about a year ago, you were sitting on boards of five companies all of which were Russian, including the Moscow Stock Exchange. Some of them you had served, like you said, for seven years, so since 2015. And with the invasion of Ukraine, this all came to a grinding halt. And on top of that, I think parts of your family actually come from what is present-day Ukraine. Can you tell us how you felt at that time? Well, it was the worst year of my life. Luckily now, in the second year, in a much better year, but February 24th is where the day when everything collapsed and where human tragedy literally came on the forefront. And I understood very quickly that you have to take sides. You cannot not take a side. So I had to say goodbye very quickly to some babies. If you sit on the board of a company where you dedicated seven years of your life to making it better, and in case of Alrosa, that, that was the case of seeing it go from firmly state-owned company to a company that was properly governed, that was paying all its free cash flows to shareholders, which included the market holders, where you formed a very strong bond with the management team and were able to accomplish that together with the board. And the board was 15 people, and I was one of them. Through your thought leadership and daily toil, it's hard. It's hard to resign. I had to resign to the Russia's Minister of Finance because he was my chair of the board, but leave with a way that doesn't make people feel terrible about themselves in that capacity. So I resigned on day two from companies with state-owned ownership and a few days later from remarkable private-owned companies because it became untenable. And clearly, you had to take a side. 
scary and amazing days of being in boardrooms where people had to make these very difficult decisions where the loyalty was divided. You had the loyalty to people of the companies, but also you had a loyalty to very strong human principles. And then clearly I am of Russian origin, though I have loved the country 30 years ago. And understanding also my family is, comes from Ukraine on both sides, the Jewish side of my mother and the Russian side of my father, that this is very complex issue and it's a history that will be very difficult to un- untangle. And then obviously watching the subsequent months, how everything we built over the, the past 30 years, since the time when I was a junior reporter at the Washington Post, i.e. some semblance of democratic institutions and definitely principles of governance. That in Russia, actually, on the surface, we're very strong indeed. How that was all disassembled by the regime that showed its true face. And then feeling, obviously, very, very sad about the course of history that is likely to take years before it turns the other way around. So saying goodbye, it felt like almost being on that boat that sailed in the 1920s, Russian immigration. Sad and horrible, but you had to, to choose sides. And then being, frankly casually discriminated in the coming year for the, being a person of Russian origin or for having served on those boards. Now, forgotten, but it was a very difficult thing. I've been told not to look for board jobs for some time, to take two years off, and I felt, gosh, I have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. But hey, you become collateral damage of a big world event, and you have to deal with that. And you have to have that perseverance and tell yourself, actually, every morning, today will be better. But again, I was very lucky to... Um, be approached by PIMCO, my, obviously my former employer, to come and help them manage a board of a company where they became shareholders. And I chair now a, an amazing company in Brazil. And I've been recently elected to the FTSE company. But it's been a tough journey. Every seven years, you are forced to, to do the reinvention. So my seven years have come up and I had to reinvent myself. Not in a very drastic way. How to tell your narrative, but more than anything, every morning, you give yourself motivation to wake up and carry on when you know that 80% of the feedback might be negative. And that has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has to do with the context or environment or exogenous events. And I want to circle back on this concept of self-reinvention. You've constantly reinvented yourself, going from being a journalist to very successful investor and to a world record holder in mountaineering and now serving on professional boards. What is your thinking around this concept of reinvention? Because there are people that do the same thing, have the same job, stay in the same place all their lives. Why does this concept of constant reinvention so appealing for you? I think I probably enjoy being in the zone of insecurity, as strange as it sounds. I think maybe that's why I enjoy being in the mountains. I enjoy that sense that you can bring things to order, but before that, they have to be in disorder. And then clearly the intellectual journey, right, that we all make that. And in my case, obviously, I lived in a very fast-paced world where political systems were changing, deep understanding conviction that nothing stays the same, and therefore you need to evolve to remain relevant. And I guess I want to be relevant, whatever that may be. I live now a quieter life in the mountains and maybe relevance means here something else. And now I spend more time, some of the philanthropic pursuits, trying to plant seeds of accomplishment of other people. That sense of wanting to be relevant and wanting to be a part of the dialogue and understanding that the world changes and being curious about that and feeling okay not to know 100%. One question I forgot to ask you earlier is, how do you think this inner journey 
of the endurance challenge of having completed the Explorer's Grand Challenge in record time? How do you think this journey changed you as a person? You know what? I'm not afraid of any authority anymore. I remember sitting in the boardroom with a chair who is a minister of finance yelling. And I was thinking, gosh, I am not afraid of you. I'm not (laughs) scared of your authority. I have times a recipient of misogynist behavior, treatment, and not comments. And I stand up to that and confront. So because I've endured, I've been many times because of mountaineering in this gray zone of being a not being. And I think that gives you actually physical courage of saying, I'm, I'm not afraid. Because relative to that, losing your job, losing a board, losing an argument is actually such a small thing. So I think it's that perspective that it gave me and very physical, palpable sense of what it is like to be scared. And you shouldn't be scared of authority because it's not a thunderstorm that could kill you or it's an avalanche that could bury you. So I think it's that. And being able to successfully navigate the uncertainties around you when you're up in the mountains. So what is next for you, Masha? Quite a life, maybe. <laughs> Look, I am, I am a proud mother of two kids. I enjoy very much the companionship of my daughter and my son. I climb with my son, so I enjoy being a part of his journey of discovering the great outdoors and being with him and doing engaging, I suppose, risk-based activities. And I enjoy the time that we actually most rewarding experience what a parent can have is sharing a passion and sharing a rope in our case. So I love that. I hope I will be in good health to climb big hills with my son, provided he still wants to do it in, in a few years' time. I enjoy very much my stewardship work, governance works. Today I have a portfolio that could handle more. And I enjoy getting, no matter how small or big the situation is, getting my head around it and trying to help deploy the network or do the earnest hard work in helping to quantify or qualify success. And then climbing, having those journeys and those awe moments, feeling like a child in places that may not mean anything else to to other people. So I enjoy climbing on climb peaks that take you to, you know, far flung corners of Pakistan. That's where you meet amazing people and you encounter kindness, but also unknown. Those peaks won't tell anything. They're not Everest. They're not K2s. They are your own personal mountains. They're meaningful to you. And I love having come to that point where I don't need to prove that I can climb K2. I know I can. I just choose not to. And I choose instead to go, I don't know, to Hunza Valley and climb a new line on a peak no one heard of. And who is your favorite climber? Do you have a favorite climber? Yes. I think for me, this would be Kurtaka. He was a Polish mountaineer one of the first to do all 14, 8,000 meter peaks, but he was known for doing it his way, never being flashy, always climbing new routes, and he ultimately perished on one of them. And it's having that, that sense on uh, what mountaineering, the real mountaineering is, this journey for yourself. One of my Soviet mountaineers, Bukreev, who perished in Annapurna in an accident, but he's featured in the movie Everest because he's the guy who goes out and saves people. He said, mountains are not my uh, stadiums of ambition. They are places where I come to worship. And I think that this is what it became for me. And I very much ally with the spirit. It's not trying to do everything. And then, therefore, my record actually, the retrospect is apprenticeship. I'm proud of what I've done, but it's not the thing in life that I'm most proudest of. 
we're soon coming to the end of this episode. Can you tell us where people can find you and also Grit and Rock, your charity based in the UK? Sure, absolutely. So I have a website, grittenrock.com. Or for more updates, it's Instagram. So its handle is grittenrock. Great. And last but not least, a question that I ask everyone. What does the founder spirit mean to you? I think it's quest and thirst for reinvention. It's never being contented with where you are, that search for what is next. And that reinvention that is fed by curiosity, the unflappable drive, ability to be a cat that lands on the feet and says that tomorrow will be better. But again, it's the reinvention because that was what keeps the longevity of the organizations. And I think that's what keeps us relevant and alive. Thank you. I can't wait to see how you're going to reinvent yourself next. We're now coming to the end of our interview. And as you know, we end every episode with a quote. And for this episode, we have a quote from Edmund Hillary, a New Zealand mountaineer, explorer, and philanthropist best known for being the first climber confirmed to have reached the top of Everest in 1953, along with his Sherpa Tenzing Norgay. It is not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Masha, thank you so much for joining us today and taking us across all the summits in your life. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a huge pleasure.